0: Hope you feel encouraged and ready for me to bring you down the trials. You know, I was at family camp uh, for a couple days. I didn't make Cody's video. Apparently, I'm not photogenic enough. Dan, thanks for the photo of me. It was a little large, it was a little large in the frame. But there was part of family camp that I think, for me, was a little bit of a metaphor for, uh, for what we're going to be talking about today. And that was when Marshall took us out into the middle of nowhere and then stuck us down this hole. This big, long, I don't know how long it was, a mile long? This total darkness, you know, rocks, boulders, and you're walking and you don't know when the end is coming. And it just was a trial for me, you know, especially, you know, there was some guys there, uh, they were a little more fleet of foot than me, just scampering around with their lights. And I'm, you know, one false move and this 200 and something pounds is going to come down on this ankle. And there I'm going to be stuck in the darkness in this cave. You know, there were other things, you know, there were, there, were, there were people that noticed my, you know, I was a little lagging behind. But they would stay with me and give me light. Don walked with me a little bit and gave me some extra light. And, and so in this trial of this tunnel, you know, uh, it was just encouraging uh, to have people there with me. So it's good to have people in your trials. And there was plenty of prayers being said. God, please help me not to die in this dark tunnel. And then you turn around, you find the end eventually, and then you go back, and it's sometimes easier to go back when uh, you know how far you've gone. You know, you, you have a sense, because when you're going in, you don't know when the end is. But when you're coming out, and when you come out, and, and the light, finally there's light at the end of the tunnel, it really makes makes a lot of sense, so that was just an experience for me of a, a trial in that in that family camp but, but I would recommend the camp, even though there are some trials today we begin our study in the in the book of James. Are you excited let 's hang in with me you know i 've noticed something we tend to be excited at the beginning we need to stay excited throughout okay We need to join the small groups and we need to stay in the small groups throughout okay i 'm just I'm just saying faith works. It's the title. James is about having faith, having trust in God. Faith is referred to 14 times in this in the five chapters. And sometimes we think of James as the works book and Paul writes the faith stuff, but but James is talking about faith. James is talking about faith. But faith is seen in the context of obedience, of works of action, out of 108 verses, and I counted, James gives 59 commands. 59 commands. It's like a command for every two verses. James says that Christianity, our our relationship with God, is about faith that works. They go together. They can't be separated. Don't let anyone tell you that they can be separated. That phrase, faith works, can be taken, should be taken in in two ways. First, faith works. Faith must be put into action. You must do something with your faith. Faith without works, James will say, is dead. So, the the first way faith works, faith must be put into action. And second, faith works. Faith is effective, it's transformative. If you like, it changes who you are, enables you to act. It enables you to live out your faith, to live what you believe. There's something actually that takes place in your heart and in your soul. This transformation, remember Paul says, we are new creatures in Christ. When we put our faith in in God, we have the the power to live the Christian life. So I'd encourage you to, to fully engage in this study. To fully engage. Get one of the notebooks, as Tom pointed out. Pick up the small group notes out front. Take notes. Write down questions in the times of the sermon in your small groups. And finally, I, I think, and most importantly for us, is, is to join a small group. And it's, it's never too late. This is a key part of our study. Joining together, encouraging one another, learning together, growing together, holding one another accountable and hopefully, as we, as we study what it means, what James says, faith is, faith put into action, as we study those things together, that we can begin ministering together, begin walking through this very practical book together, and, and, it, and it would grow us in our, as individuals as we minister in our, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and together as a, as a group, as we encourage one another in that, we discover that, yes, faith works. So let's, let's dive in. In the first verse, we find out both who the author is and who the recipients are. And this is important to get, get this context. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So James is, is a follower of Jesus Christ. He's a servant of God. That's how he identifies himself. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Hey, how you guys doing? Now most evangelical scholars believe that James was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, not James the, the apostle, James the son of thunder, but James the, the half-brother of Jesus. James was, was a leader in the, in the church in Jerusalem, and he was writing to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. So what's, what's that all about? Twelve tribes here refers to, the, to Israel, to the, to the Jews. The early church was made up mainly of Jewish Christians, in, in case you didn't know. Most of the, uh, the first Christians were, were Jewish Christians. And James is thought to be probably the first book in the New Testament that was written down. And probably most of the Christians at that time were Jewish Christians. So it's to these early Christians that James writes. The early church... Uh, if you if you if you have Acts, the book of Acts. If you guys anybody read that, it's a good book. In Acts chapter eight, it records that there was a persecution that came upon Jerusalem, and at that time, the Christians, many of the Christians, were scattered. They were scattered. They were dispersed throughout Judea, throughout Samaria, and beyond because of this persecution. So it's to these early Jewish Christians that James writes. He writes to those who were formerly under his care. Remember, he was a leader of the church. He writes a letter to them as they're dispersed out. It's, the letter's going to be sent out, and probably a lot of folks will get to read it. He writes a letter of instruction and encouragement regarding, really, and we're going to hit this hard this morning, how to live out their life in the midst of trials and temptations that they're facing. As you can imagine, they're being persecuted, they're being sent out, all the things that they're having to go through, finding new places to live, ways to survive, probably being persecuted even as they go. And even though this book was written close to 2,000 years ago, written to Jewish Christians fleeing Jerusalem, because it's the word of God, it's amazing how it applies to us today isn't it? There are great truths that will help us as individuals understand and deal with the trials and the temptations that we face on a daily basis. Is anyone in this room going through a trial, facing a temptation in their life? All right, the rest of you are liars. No, just kidding. For you that raised your hand, and for you that didn't as well, because I think it's true. Certainly, I mean, you may not be experiencing some trial that you can identify with, but we're all experiencing temptations on a daily basis. James is going to address both of those, by the way. James is written for us, and he begins with trials. He wants his readers to have a clear understanding and faith and trust in the fact that God works in our trials. Okay, if, if you don't get anything else I say today, write that down. What's well, in your notes, if you're taking your own notes. God works in our trials, and we'll talk through that quite a bit this morning. He says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We'll get to the working part in a minute, but let's deal with this. I mean, what a way to start off. Okay, James, way to raise the bar for the Christian. This is this is unnatural. Who does this? This is in fact opposite to our natural inclination. Trials I mean naturally trials cause me to be angry. They cause me to complain. They cause me to have self pity. I mean we love a pity party when we're the guest of honor, don't we? But James says count it all joy. When you experience trials, there are two things we need to, to know about counting it joy in trials. First, it's a command. We're commanded to count, to consider it all joy when we experience trials of various kinds small trials, big trials, minor trials, major trials. So, first, joy in our trials is commanded. This is the first of, of James's, James's 59 commands. We only have 58 to go. And this one might be the toughest. This might be the hardest command at all. And he, he throws it out there right in the beginning. No, no holding back, James. Because the second, the second thing we need to understand about, about this phrase, consider it, count it all, joy. Joy is not... As some have taught, some spiritual state of contentment that doesn't involve your emotions. We want to throw out the emotions, but James doesn't let us do it. Joy actually means, get this, it actually means joy. It actually means to rejoice. It actually means to delight in. There's emotion involved. It's not just a duty-bound joy. It's an emotional, real thing. So how is that possible? How can we go against our natural inclinations of anger and self-pity and just pain in the midst of our trials? How can we have joy in our trials? James helps us with that. He wants to change our perspective, He wants us to understand there's something going on here. He wants us to understand that in the midst of our trials, God is accomplishing his purposes in our lives. Let's be clear here. We do not rejoice in trials for trials' sake. Okay? But by faith, we rejoice in what God is accomplishing through the trials. In and through trials. Us with trials. We'd, we don't have to rejoice over the fact that we lost our job or we lost a friend or we or lost our health. We rejoice in what God will accomplish in the midst of these negative circumstances. And that's where faith play, plays the, the greatest part. We have to have faith and trust that God will accomplish something in this difficult, difficult situation. I mean, that's, that's the nature of our existence. I mean, just in nature. I read this the other day. You guys know the, the, the caterpillar. That is that, is that is that what they're called? The caterpillars that turn into the butterflies? They're caterpillars, of course, and they get in that little chrysalis. Thanks. Why don't you tell the story? The little chrysalis there. And and they've done, you know, clearly, as soon as the caterpillar gets in the chrysalis, you can't open it up and there's a butterfly. That doesn't make sense, right? But But, you know, you might think, as the as it starts to crack and it's trying to get its way out and it's working and it's really going through a trial that if you reached up and helped it out and and got it out and you know used a little razor to cut through and it could it would just be just have that much more strength and that's not the case if you do that the thing just falls and dies it's in that process of breaking out of the cocoon that it that it grows that it it gains strength for the for the flight that it ...that it'll take as a butterfly. Just the nature. We know that's true for us as well. We grow in our trials. We don't have to rejoice over the fact that we lost our job, our friends. We do rejoice in the fact that God is accomplishing something in in our lives. And that's what James is going to address in verses 3 through 12. He explains how God is working through trials... ...that we might count it all joy... And the first thing he says is that in our trials, we grow in maturity. We grow in maturity. We want to be mature, don't we? I hope so. You need trials to grow in maturity. Verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith, trials, produce steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Any trial you face is really a, a test of your faith. Do you have the faith to endure? Do you trust God is working in the, in the midst of this tough, difficult situation? Will you trust him with your finances will you, when they're going wrong? Will you trust them with your health when it's plummeting? Will you trust him in your relationships when you don't know what he's doing? If so, then, then steadfastness or perseverance is produced in your life. Spiritual toughness is what trials bring. We talked about this just two weeks ago. We brought up this, this verse in James in our study of Abraham as he went through this ultimate test of faith when God told him to sacrifice his son. The trial, the test, is not just a, for Abraham and for you and I. is isn't just an evaluation of your faith. Okay, check, he's doing okay in the, in the faith thing. The test itself is part of the process of growing our faith, of producing steadfastness, with the goal being that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word perfect is probably better understood for us, as the NIV translates it, mature. Our trials, our tests of faith, are part of the process that leads us to maturity in Christ. So you see, God's goal for our lives is that we become mature Christians. God wants us to grow. God wants us to make the right choices. God wants us to have relationship with him. God wants us to become more like him. And like it or not, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, as we'll get to in a little bit, trials are God's greatest tool in in his quest For our maturity. But the problem is, our goal is normally just just to get out of the trial as quickly as possible. Our goal is to fix our circumstances. That's what we're looking at, that's the strategy we want to employ. We want the trial to go away. We want our life back to the way we think it should be. So, in that case, the trial is just a, a barrier, it's a barrier to our happiness. It's something to get rid of ASAP. And in in that case, there's no joy. There's no joy. But when our goal becomes God's goal, when our goal is maturity, to know God in a deeper way, to be transformed into his likeness, then no matter how deep or dark your trial is, we can have joy knowing that God God of the, I mean, if you're going through tough stuff, God's working. God's working in your, he cares about you. He's at work in your life. He wants to grow you. He wants to make you into this mature person that that can then uh, be used for his purposes, oftentimes with the same kind of people who are going through the trials that, that, that you come through. Just think about a trial in your life right now. It could be small could be large. A trial that you're walking through right now. Something at home, something at work, a financial or a relational issue. A decision you're struggling to make. Now, what's your goal in that trial? If your goal is only to, to fix it or change your circumstances, to get out, then in reality, maybe that'll happen. Maybe The trial will probably end at some point. But oftentimes it, it won't. It, it goes on. Particularly not, it won't end as you had planned. And, and you know what? There's always another trial right around the corner. The nature of our existence. But what would happen if you looked at the trial, this trial in your life, and you said, out loud to the Lord, I know there are things I need to deal with, not, not calling for inaction in our trials. I'm not calling for us to make them, to prolong them. I know there are things that, that I need to do, but more than anything, I want to know you in this process, this difficult thing I'm going through. I want to know you more. I want to understand what you have for me more. This is a this is a a radically different way to live. This is distinctively a, a Christian way to live, to believe that the bad things that happen in our lives, difficulties, the trials, the obstacles, the, the bumps in the road, and the huge, you know, the, when the bridge is out, serve a purpose that God is in control, that he's working in our lives, and he's working to mature our faith. You see, trials are a joy when knowing God is our goal. When our focus moves from the terrible situation to God himself, to what God is doing, what God is accomplishing. When my focus moves from me to he, from, from myself to, to God When we believe that that the knowledge of God, that intimacy with God, that relationship with God is the best possible thing in our life, then trials which cause us to trust in Him and lean on Him and pursue Him become good things. They are a joy. I remember gaining some understanding on this when, when my wife was struggling with a I mean, it was, uh, you know, if you're married and your wife has a trial, you have a trial. You know, or vice versa. And, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. My wife was struggling with the, this, uh, help me out, Jeff, diverticulitis. No, that's not it. What's the face thing? Anyway, she had a lot of pain in her face. I mean, just, she couldn't talk. She could hardly eat. She couldn't teach, and she's a teacher, And so together, going through this trial, there was just a lot of of prayer, a lot of, and and you know what I was growing in more than anything, and it's the thing I need the most, in compassion. God was growing me and maturing me in compassion. And I can't say, and I recognized that totally at the time, and I was jumping for joy. Thank you, Lord, for my wife's face pain. That's not what I'm talking about. But in the midst of it, and especially when it when they drilled a hole in her head and fixed it, that was good. Seeing God work in our lives, that we could trust in him, he grew us in, in many ways. And, that, and that's just one small example. I mean, it's a big example. Many others. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this. He knew that if, if God is the goal, then there can be joy in trials. The author of Hebrews writes this. This is amazing. you don't have this verse, memorized. memorize it. Write it down. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. So that's the instruction to us. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because He's the author and perfecter of our faith and who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was able to count even the cross a joy. And the cross was not, I mean, the cross was not a pleasant experience for him, physically, emotionally, even spiritually, as he took the wrath of God upon himself for our sins. But he was able to count it joy because he didn't focus on his current circumstances. He scorned the shame. I mean, it's like uh, the best translation. I, I, he, he didn't, it didn't matter, the shame that didn't matter. His focus was not on the trial itself, the focus was on God and what God was accomplishing through the trial, through the cross. When when knowing God and serving his purposes are our goal, then trials can become a joy. And we grow in maturity. And we also grow in wisdom. In wisdom. James says this in verse, verse 5 through, through 8. Let me read. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We're going to focus on verse 5 and just... Touch a little bit on 6 through 8. And we need to remember the context here. We just talked about the context. The context is verses 2 through 4. Trials, testing of your faith. James is saying that in the midst of your trials, if you lack wisdom, if you don't have the proper perspective, if you don't understand what's going on here, if you don't know what your next step should be, You can ask God, and he gives generously to all. But he does want us to come to him in faith. That's what 6 through 8 are about. You must trust that God will provide his wisdom. He says, come to me in faith and ask for wisdom, for understanding and insight into your trial. Now, what kind of wisdom do we expect from God in the midst of our trials? We may only want wisdom to get out of the trial as soon as possible, to fix the situation. God, tell me, tell me how to fix this, how to make this better. I'm tired of this. But I don't think that's the most important wisdom we need, and God may provide that. God's wisdom is not about the quick fix for your bad circumstances. God's wisdom provides understanding in the midst of our trials. Wisdom to bear the trial that you're going through. Suppose you have a major health or issue, maybe even a terminal disease. Going to God for wisdom does not mean that he's going to give you the the cure for the disease. It means he'll give you wisdom to live for him in the midst of your sickness, of your pain, of your suffering. He'll give you a wise perspective on, on life and death. He'll give you knowledge of himself. He'll give you purpose Put simply, God will give you the wisdom not to get out of the trial, but to get through the trial. Count it all joy, James says, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials, because you know you're, you're growing in maturity. You're growing in wisdom from God. And we also grow in reliance. Reliance on God. James now turns to, to one of the greatest challenges that we face in this world. Finances. Money. Poverty and wealth. And as most of us know, some of the greatest trials come in in this area, some of the greatest struggles, especially in 21st century USA. In the midst of your financial trials, James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Again, the context here, trials. James says to the lowly, to the poor brother, and to the rich brother, you must rely on the Lord in whatever situation you find yourself in. To the lowly brother who struggles just to make ends meet. Who struggles with personal humiliation, maybe in his circumstances. James says, boast. Boast in your exaltation. Where does that exaltation come from? It comes from the Lord. You may struggle with finances, but rely on the Lord. For he will exalt you in the proper time. He will exalt you unto eternal life. This passage isn't about, and God will supply your needs. That's in Philippians. This is about exalting in the fact that Christ even especially for the poor, will exalt you in the proper time. And in contrast, the rich brother who struggles with personal pride and self-sufficiency is to boast, not in his exaltation, but in his humiliation, knowing that his wealth won't last, that everything he has will fade away, and therefore he he too must rely on the Lord for his exaltation. His exaltation only comes... From the Lord, in times of trials, financial or, or really any kinds of trials we face, we have to rely on the resources of the Lord. And the greatest resource that the Lord provides is relationship with, with Himself. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you're growing in your maturity, you're growing in your wisdom and you're growing in your reliance on the Lord. And finally in the section on trials we are greatly rewarded we are greatly rewarded keith green has a song how many of you guys know who keith green is nice old people anyway keith green has a song and it's called trials turned to gold he understood this when when he wrote that, that your trials are turned to gold you're re- you're rewarded Blessed is the man, verse 12, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's a reward promised to those who remain steadfast under trial, who trust God to the very end. The reward is the crown of life. Now, just so we understand, this isn't a literal crown made of gold and jewels. The crown that they would have been thinking of wouldn't even have been that. The crown that they would have been thinking of in James's day would have been the crown. It's really more of the, the athlete's wreath, you know, you see in the, the the games, the little leaves around your head. It goes to the victor, the wreath for the for victory. And in Scripture, the crown is also symbolic of a reward. So what James is saying is that those who are steadfast under Trials. Those who persevere to the end will receive the reward of of life. The reward is life. At the end of this race, through trial after trial after trial, we'll receive the reward of life. There's an eternal life waiting for those who remain steadfast. And this should give us just great, this is the perspective giver, great perspective in our trials today this world is not our home we're living for a reward to come and this can give us great joy in the midst of our trials this is how we can face the worst and most devastating circumstances maybe some of you are going through because you know that this world is not our home we have eternity in his presence to look forward to Etern- I mean, I, I, I did a sermon many years ago, and I had a, I think someone else did this recently, maybe Philip. Anyway, had a little fishing line, and I, I held one end of the line, and I strung it all the way out there. I, think I had my dad take it out there, the, this line representing eternity, and took a piece of gum and stuck on it, and that's our life. I mean, our life, this piece of gum that I stuck on it is full of trials. But we have eternity Stretching on forever to look forward to. And that should give us just amazing perspective in the midst of our trials. What trial can compare to eternity in the presence of the living God? Now, I know there are trials represented around this room, here in this room, that that I can't can't even fathom. Any of you are going through things that I don't understand. I I sat having lunch with a guy this week, and he told me some of the issues he has faced in his life that I have never faced. I I can't imagine. I haven't experienced those. But no matter what your trial is, I want to encourage you to fix your eyes upon Jesus. Again, the author and perfecter of our faith. Draw near to him. Rely on the resources that he provides. Knowing that God in the midst of your trial is at work. Because God doesn't say totally, so so we're clear. He doesn't say, "Okay, tough it out here," because you got eternity. God says, "You know, you got eternity, and I'm with you here too. I'm with you here too. I'm at work in your trial. If we walk with Him through our trials, if knowing Him is the goal of our trials, then we can count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet various trials, trials of various kinds, because We grow in maturity, in wisdom, in reliance on God. And we are greatly, eternally rewarded. So that's the the end of trials, so to speak. Now James moves to temptations. In trials, the emphasis is God's work in our lives. And again, that's what I want you to remember the most. God is at work. When you're facing the trial, God is at work. In temptations, the emphasis is different. The emphasis is on our responsibility. James says, we are responsible in our temptations. Verse 13, let no one say that when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what's the relationship between trials, tests, and temptations? We said that God is in control of our trials... And we know that God will test his people. We see this all throughout scripture. We know this from personal experience. We saw it last week in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham's faith was tested by God with a trial from It's amazing to me. You know, last week, and I didn't necessarily plan this, but, you know, last week we're studying Abraham and what's Abraham going through? The trial of his life. This week we're studying James, separated by thousands of years, still relevant, the same thing trials, God works in our trials. But James is making it very clear that trials and temptations are different. He wants to make sure that we don't think that God's testing, God working in our trials, means that God tempts us. Because in reality, every trial brings temptation with it, right? Like if if you're experiencing financial difficulty, Somewhere on the way, along the way, you're tempted, and you begin to doubt. We're tempted to doubt and question, God, are you really going to provide here? Are you really going to meet my needs according to your riches and glory? When something happens in our family, maybe, maybe we lose a family member. We're tempted to doubt the love of God. And we tend to, to run to the things of this world. And James says to make sure we realize, he wants us to realize that that though God is sovereign over our trials, he's in in control over our trials, he's not responsible in our temptations. He makes it clear by by giving us the origin of sin. This is helpful. He says in verse 13 that God is, is perfectly sinless. He cannot be tempted by evil. God is not directly or indirectly responsible for sin or temptation in your life. He tempts no one, period. So who is responsible? This is where James takes out the mirror and he says, look in it. He puts it right in in front of us and he says, But each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We are responsible. The responsibility for sin and our response to temptation lies directly within each one of us. There's no one else to blame, not even Satan. The devil made me do it, not really. He's going to talk about Satan, and Satan has its role, and Chapter 4, but for now, he says you're responsible for your own desires, your own sin. Now, this is so counter to what our culture teaches. We're told that that if if we do something wrong, then someone or something else has got to be responsible. What was it in your background? What did your family do to you? What did your mom and dad do to you? What about your friends? Your friends are leading you astray. Your circumstances, you grew up. Poor. What causes you to do such a thing? Now, I don't want to discount the way these things influence our lives because they do have an effect on us. But Scripture teaches very clearly, ultimately, the responsibility for your sin is you. For my sin is me. In the words of Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Nothing good. Nothing good. How's that for the power of positive thinking? Woohoo! Nothing good. Thanks for the encouragement today, Pastor. Let's pray and, and go home. Nothing good dwells in me. I was trying to be funny there. Notice trying, emphasize. But it's at this point that our that our culture undercuts the very heart of the gospel. If we don't understand our complete and total sinfulness before God, our own personal responsibility for our own sin, then the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ isn't good news to us. We have to understand that the fault for our sin lies in us. We can't be blaming something or someone else. There's there's a problem at the core of who we are. Notice the steps that James lays out in verses 14 and 15. Sin begins with our own desire. We're lured and enticed by our desires. That's the temptation. We want what we want. Now, the question is will we act on our desires? Will we act on the temptation? Or will we trust in the Lord? If we trust the Lord, then the process is stopped, sin is avoided. It's been my personal experience, and, I, and I'd like to give this to you as a strategy for dealing with sin at this point in your life. Maybe some of you have experienced it as well. When I'm tempted, and I'm tempted a lot for, in different areas, there's always that point of decision. There's that point of choice. Will I stop? Will I trust in the Lord? Will I turn to Him and ask for help and escape the temptation? Or will I turn away? Will I allow the temptation to give birth to sin? I'll say that every time, every single time, that I turn to the Lord, He's faithful. He delivers me from the sin. The problem is I don't turn to Him every time. So when I or when we allow desires to take hold of us, When we allow conception, this this birth analogy here, there's the conception and then the birth. When we allow the conception of these desires in our lives, then James says those desires give birth to sin. Sin is born. We act upon our selfish desires and the result is sin. And, And ultimately we continue in that life of temptation leading to sin leading to temptation leading sin, and the result is, is death, physical death, spiritual death. This process of desire leading to sin, leading to death, can be seen all around us, even, even and unfortunately in the church. We see, see it when men run to pornography. We see it when a woman runs to a, another man's arms, when a business person loses his integrity just, just to make more money. It happens because there's something that, uh, that appeals to us. There's something in us, something that drags us away and entices us, that, that draws, draws us to what destroys us, draws us to what kills us. I just, I just want to urge us, I think James is urging us, if and when you face, and we face them on a daily basis, these temptations, these sinful desires, when those desires Begin to lure your heart when they seem so appealing because they can be so appealing in the moment. Remember that they bring death, and therefore your response should be to run from those desires and run. And you can't just run from the desires. Get this: you can't just run from the desires because they'll they'll just walk along with you. They'll they'll stroll up. I hate it when weird things come to my mind. But seen that word? Anybody seen the movie Westworld? Is old and sci-fi, so I, I, if you haven't, it'll be for those for those two of you. It'll be Yul Brynner. It'll be Yul Brynner just following you along in that movie. Yul Brynner, the guy was running from him, and he was just relentlessly pursuing him. But you can't just run from sin; you have to run to the Lord because He will blow Yul Brynner's head off. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, he, the Lord will take care of it. The Lord will take it away. Because sin will kill you. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Those are the two alternatives. And you kill sin by by running to the Lord, by giving it to the Lord. It'll destroy your family, your friendships, your reputation. And most importantly, it'll kill your relationship with God. It'll be a downward spiral. Now, I I want us to notice something here. Even though trials and temptations, so, so you know, uh, in, the, in the Greek, they're very close words. They're derived from the same words. So there's, so there's some relation there, but, but James is making this huge distinction between them. They're very different. Trials are external. They can and often do come from God himself, and God is at work in our trials. Whereas temptations are our own responsibility. They, they're internal. They come from our own sinful desires. God tempts no one. But in each case, get this, in each case, where, whether the tr- it's a trial or it's a temptation you're facing, the response is the same. To run to the Lord. To trust in the Lord. You know, that's, that's a Christian life. Put in three words. Four words, sorry, I can't count. Trust in the Lord. That's the Christian life. You're facing trials, you're facing temptations, you're facing anything. Trust So James is saying that we're to have faith, trust in God in our trials and our temptations. And why are we to have faith? That's how James concludes this section, by telling us why we can trust in God, why we trust in God in the midst of our trials and temptations. 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Don't be deceived by your own desires. Trust in Him, in your trials and in your temptations. Why? Because He's good. He's infinitely good. And in every trial, in every temptation, you'll want to doubt. You'll want to question His goodness Don't be deceived in trials or temptations. God is good, and and every good and perfect gift is from above. God gives good gifts, perfect gifts, to His children. God gives so much more than any trial can take away. And you don't have to fear that God is ever going to stop being God, that God is ever going to stop giving good gifts, for there's no variation or shadow due to change. God's goodness is unchanging. He will not stop being good even and especially in the midst of your trials and your temptations. Finally, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. you have got to get this in our trials. Get this. you're, You're a child of God. It was God's will to bring us forth by the word of truth. God chose you. This is undeserved grace. Remember, there's nothing good that lives in us. We've talked about this. Everything that is good is in God. So what, what in us would cause him to save us, to give us new life? Is there anything in us? No. He chose to do, save us, out of his grace and mercy. This is the gospel. Anything good in us can only be a result of his goodness towards us. But again, this is totally against 21st century culture. We don't want to hear this. Our culture says, yeah, we're, we're good. We're good people. Everybody's a good person. But scripture says we're not. You have a sinful nature at the core of who you are. And, and that sinful nature drags away and, and entices you towards Sin and and death. And the good and glorious God, He reached down with His hand and He placed it on you in your heart. And He put His goodness there in you where there was no goodness. God placed His goodness. And every single thing that is good in you is from God. That's the gospel that we have nothing but bad in us and we need a good God to come and save us. And He's done it by pouring out the penalty for our bad, our sin, our evil upon His one and only Son. Praise God for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now think about how an understanding of the Gospel, the understanding of who you were, who you are, before God Gave you this great gift of Christ. How that changes the way we walk through our trials. How we deal with temptations. He saved us from our sin. And because he saved us from our sin. We can rest in total confidence. That he'll see us through our trials. He's done the hardest thing ever. The cross for us. We can trust him. That he'll see us through our trials. He'll help us. In our times of temptation, it's guaranteed. Run to God in your times of temptation. Oh no, I, I'm I'm busy now. Will never be what He says. I went to the cross for you. I'm I'm here for you. I'll deal with this temptation. Come into my arms. Your trials and temptations will end. They're going to end. And glory and new life will come. The Apostle Paul writes this great verse of perspective. In Romans chapter 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings, the trials, and the temptations of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory is is God Himself. Life is full of trials and temptations and and tests and suffering and pain. But for those who trust in the Lord, these things are, are just temporary. Very temporary. They'll be done away with. Glory will come. There will be glory in the presence of the Lord. Therefore, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For God is faithful in your trials. He's faithful in your temptations. We have eternity in His presence to look forward to. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, thank You so much. You saved us, Lord. and, And then when You saved us, You didn't... You didn't stop there. You you gave us relationship with you. You walk with us through our trials. You, you strengthen us and grow us and mature us and give us wisdom in our trials. Lord, and you, though you're not responsible for our temptations, you'll deal with those as well if we'll come to you. Lord, thank you so much for Christ that we have this opportunity through Christ to enter into that kind of relationship, a relationship with a God who loves us and is faithful to us in the midst of our trials and our temptations. Lord, Be with us this week and and this month and throughout the year as we face these things. Help us to see that you're at work and help us to trust in you completely and totally. In Christ's name. Amen.